Hello and welcome to Bad Reads with Kira and Simon, a podcast about reading, the experience of being a reader, and reading culture. And on today's episode, we're talking about film and TV adaptations. In preparation for this episode, like any bad reader, I went and watched movies. <laughs> Instead of reading, I went and in fact, this in the last week, I watched two film adaptations. Oh, it's like when you have a set text at school, isn't it? And you watch the film instead of reading the book. <laughs> That's exactly what I felt like. After I watched the film, I just did a little Google search, you know, find the Cliff's Notes. <laughs> see what people said about how the film related to the book. <laughs> it's always that you then write about the scenes that don't appear in the book and only appear in the film as well. <laughs> Which films did you skip homework for this week's episode to watch? <laughs> the first was The Company of Wolves. I have neither read that nor seen the film. <laughs> okay, so the film is a Neil Jordan film produced in 1984. It's based on a short story by Angela Carter in her book, The Bloody Chamber, which is a collection of short stories which reimagine classic fairy tales. And The Company of Wolves is a reimagining of Little Red Riding Hood. And interestingly, Angela Carter was actually a co-writer on the script of the film, as well as writing the source material. And I had read various stories from The Bloody Chamber last year. So it's a really interesting comparison to make, and very different because the story is super short in many ways, a great way to do an adaptation because you take the bare bones of something and then expand it out and make it more fantastical. But yeah, so, and in that way too, you really keep Angela Carter's narrative voice. Everything that is in the story is in the film because there's not that much of it, but they just build on this extra scaffolding. So Little Red Riding Hood herself, she's not called that, she's called Rosaline in the film. I don't think she has a name in the book, but she appears right the way through. And the other stories in the short story are told by the grandmother or by her. And then there's also this kind of extra scaffolding, which I wasn't convinced was really needed. So it's of a girl in the modern day, the 80s, with amazing 80s makeup and hair, lying in bed, having a nightmare. And the nightmare is the Little Red Riding Hood nightmare. Oh, so the film itself is set in her dream. Yeah, so it's kind of, they embed the story within, it's a nested story. Angela Carter's story is all about taking this werewolf tale and making it about a teenage girl's sexual awakening. Won't spoiler too much for people who haven't read the story or seen the film. Yeah, so having her kind of in bed, having this dream, felt a little bit... Unnecessary, <laughs> kind of like telling you she's in bed, she's having this dream and looking a bit agitated about it. So that was kind of maybe unnecessary. But on the flip side, it's so magical. The entire thing is set within the woods, but it's all filmed on stages. So this elaborately constructed woodland scene. I don't know if it was Shepperton, but it's all indoors, which is extraordinary and wonderfully 80s. By that, I mean, there's wonderful animatronics of transformation from man to werewolf, including like, you know, a snout coming out of a human mouth. Hard to describe, but if you love, especially looking back on developments in film, you know, animatronics before CGI, 
So good. It's got a sort of um, Pan's Labyrinth or, or Labyrinth feel to it. Yeah, oh yeah. In the werewolf's get-up, there's a definite sort of labyrinth feel. <laughs> but also that Pan's Labyrinth of it being slightly unclear as to whether you're in safe territory or not, and how much you enjoy not being in safe territory. I watched the film on on a Friday afternoon. I'd taken a half day of holiday, and I decided to watch it then because I did not think that my partner would be interested in watching it. I decided to give him the benefit of the doubt, though, and run it past him the night before when we were cooking dinner, and... <laughs> I just kind of gave him a brief pressy and he said, this sounds like the worst film concept you've described to me. 80s, fairy tale, game over. (laughs) And I said in response, well, I'm glad you said that because I'll enjoy watching it more without you. (laughs) Which is true. Which one did you prefer then? Did you prefer the book or the short story or the film? I think it's a great collection of short stories, but I think... This one is quite a sparse story, and so I really enjoyed seeing it more fleshed out in the film. That's my verdict. I think there's some interesting turns in it, and there's something curious in that the character that she's writing about is literally just started puberty. And obviously in the filming of that, there's some things that they couldn't do that were included in the book. Not least because the actress herself who played Little Red Riding Hood, I think she was about 14 at the time of filming, and the werewolf character was... The actor was 25 years older than her. So they very carefully didn't shoot anything that would be too exploitative. They do often say, don't they, that short stories make good films because it gives enough of an idea but gives the film enough latitude to work around. Because when I was thinking about this topic of adaptions, Philip K. Dick kept popping into my head as, Mm. I I don't know if he had, does he have the record for the most Hollywood films adapted from his work? Oh, I don't know. Maybe most different ones? I can only think of Blade Runner. (laughs) <laughs> so surprise me so Blade Runner is the obvious one Minority Report oh of course mm-hmm. which has both a film and now a TV series as well does it? yeah there was a TV series of it a few years ago and last year or the year before there was a TV series called Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams each episode was one of his short stories done as a semi-feature length episode Man in a High Castle was done by Amazon oh Cool. That has that real thing where you can see that they just took one concept from it. You know, what if the Nazis had won the Second World War? And then, like, that's all That's all we need from that. That's a TV series, isn't it? <laughs> that's all we need from the source material. Maybe a name here and there, but, like, we're done. <laughs> Total Recall huh. is the adaption of We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Right. And, of course, there's been two Total Recalls, two Totals Recall. <laughs> there is... A film a few years ago called The Adjustment Bureau. Yeah. Which I remember watching, which I can't remember anything about it, though, other than there were some men with sort of bowler hats. Emily Blunt, Matt Damon. Yes, that's right. I think I've watched it a couple of times, and that's about all I can remember. She's in a dress, he might be in a tux, and they're running through buildings. Yes, they run through doors and go out, out of our world into another world, don't they? Mm. Um, but that's a, off a Philip K. Dick short story, I think, called The Adjustment Man, I think. Bureau sounds better. Yeah. And then there was a film which I watched with Nicolas Cage in about 2007 called Next. Hmm. 
about a man that can see into the future, but he can only see about five minutes into the future. I think a lot of Philip K. Dick's short stories have this like one science fiction idea, this sort of big concept. Yeah, enough to spark off the imagination. Which I hear comes from the fact that he was on a load of drugs. (laughs) But as you say, it's just that one big concept that Hollywood can then use to build a plot around. All you need to know about next is oh there's this guy and he can see into the future but only a little bit into the future and there you go that's your uh, that's your dramatic hook isn't it you don't need any more than that it's a great thought experiment is at the heart of a lot of those stories but also really easy to sell the idea if you can explain the concept of your film in a nutshell that's just the dream isn't it for pitching something to put on the poster yeah his books are ready-made elevator pictures aren't they they just have this one idea the title's not so much though because that seems to be the big thing is that all the films have a different, or most of them seem to have a different title from the story. Well, his titles were always either really long or quite whimsical. Blade Runner, obviously, is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is quite, like, jokey. But his books are quite jokey as well. Mm, and the film's not so much. Total Recall was We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which, again, like a jokey idea. Yeah. But that then turned into a, like an action film with, with Arnie in it. And then with Colin Farrell in the, one of those sort of like, why was this remade? I mean, I'm sort of amazed that anyone would try to remake an Arnie film. But <laughs> um, Next also features Peter Falk from Columbo. And also, of course, features in Princess Diaries. Princess Bride. I've done it again. <laughs> <laughs> Not The Princess Diaries, he's not a nerd, which is adapted from a book, but a book I've never read. It is, and you know, Simon, as we were talking about this episode, I thought, oh god, The Princess Bride is going to come up again, and it will just like, it'll get to the point where now we'll have to talk about The Princess Bride in every episode. But actually, I haven't read the book. It falls into one of those categories of, I love the film so much that I don't want to read the book. I don't know if you have this too. There are like a number of films where I find this like Breakfast at Tiffany's, Shawshank Redemption, Jurassic Park, The Godfather, Talented Mr. Ripley. It's a big list actually when I started to think about it. If you enjoy the film so much, could it be damaged by reading the book? I mean, I suppose not, but I just, I'm nervous about it. Have you ever gone and read the book of a film that you really loved? Yes. And it went extremely well, actually. Oh, all right. Which is weird, because usually, if I read the book first and then watch the film, I usually think I preferred the book. But the one occasion where this really got turned all inside out was with Mm. The Martian, another film we're talking about with Matt Damon in it, which I watched. And I'd seen the book in the shop and sort of half had it on my list of books to read at some point. Mm -hmm. I had it categorised in my head as like a hard science fiction serious book. And thought, oh, I need to be in the right mood for that. And then I watched the film, which is really quite jokey. And I think it won an award for like best comedy musical. What? <laughs> which is not a comedy. It's about a guy who gets trapped on Mars. I mean, the way that they attempt to launch him off of the planet is quite comedic. In a that's ridiculous sort of a way. Not necessarily what they were going for. That bit at the end where he gets launched off contains one of the few major differences from the book. Because in the book, he jokes and says, maybe what I need to do is cut a hole in my finger and then I can fire myself around like Iron Man. And in the film, he actually does do that. (laughs) (laughs) But the film is quite funny, actually, mainly because of his narration. And then I went and read the book 
which also is very funny and has the same narration and sort of the same jokes. I got a lot out of both the book and the film, even though it's a pretty faithful adaption. And usually if it's a pretty faithful adaption to the original, Mm. I sort of find them a little bit bland because it's just the plot, isn't it? But without any of the interiority that you get from the book, you don't get any authorial tone if it's just a straightforward telling of the plot. Whereas in this case, yeah, I love them both. I guess that varies a lot dependent on the author's style, doesn't it? If it's a kind of book where you really get into the protagonist's thoughts, the film version can feel like it just puts too much distance between you and them. Whereas if the writer doesn't actually give you that much, if everything's set at a remove. And actually, especially if the author doesn't write in a very imagistic way, having a film can bring a whole new element to that. When you read, do you have quite clear mental pictures of it? So that when you then watch a film, they turn out to be quite different? I don't. And I think that's why I don't necessarily enjoy watching the film first and then going back to the book. Because having got that image, I can't shift it. And that's all I imagine. And sometimes I like the ambiguity of the reading experience. So even with things like Harry Potter, and I read those books growing up, and then I watched the films, and I watched the films multiple times. In that case, I really enjoyed both series, and the films were one of those things that I turned to as like a comfort watch. But the more I watched the films, the more those characters really cemented themselves in my mind. Books obviously are written for kids, and the writing style is sort of questionable, and there's loads in the films actually that's quite nicely done. I like that they have a different director for each one and you can really see like Alfonso Cuaron's style in, I think it was the third one that he directed and all that's lovely. But yeah, there's a sense of loss for me when I get too firm an idea of the character. Even actually when I read a book and the author tries to tell me too much about what the character looks like, you know, when they describe their hair colour or something, I kind of feel like, I don't know, that's weird, maybe it's this weird, but I don't really need or want that. Like, I'm just happy to imagine them as this interior character. I often imagine characters I've realised as, like, slightly nebulous concepts rather than concrete people. I think you're right to call it Harry Potter because, like with Lord of the Rings, the film versions of those are so definitive. The thought of reading Harry Potter and not now going into it with Daniel Radcliffe in your head as Harry Potter. Like, it just doesn't seem possible anymore. And the same with Lord of the Rings. I don't think you can go into it without imagining the tone and feel of those films that's in your head as you start reading it. And that's another example of one where I can't now imagine or get back what I felt when I first read the books, because I loved the films and... Yeah, the film world has replaced the book world. Sometimes I read a book and imagine details of it wrong. Like the author will tell me her hair is blonde, but I've already imagined her hair is brunette. Mm. And by the time I get to the bit where it says blonde, yeah. I can't change my mental image of it because I've already created one where it's a different colour, if I do imagine her hair, which I don't usually. And then when there's a film version where they do it faithfully yeah. and they give her the correct hair colour... My incorrect imagining still sits there and feels weird. Now, obviously, I'm wrong. The author said what they said and had their own image, and the filmmaker has faithfully copied that. But it feels weird when <laughs> when the film is different from that wrong image. Yeah, I know what you mean. I prefer it when they don't cast exactly to match the description of the physical attributes of the character, unless there's like some reason that that's actually really important to the story, which is maybe more the case for kids' books. Unless there's something that's going to get called on at some point, like it's really important that 
somebody is blonde because there's a load of like legally blonde she needs to be blonde (laughs) (laughs) do you have any other adaptations of things that you particularly really really like where you either read the book first and then went and watched the film or the tv series and thought oh god this is amazing so the first thing that come to mind are graphic novels actually which i suppose in some ways automatically lend themselves to a visual telling but the first one that comes to mind is Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis and that film is animated or based on her illustrations from the book and that's lovely and I think in that case the two things really stand alone as well as working together. Oh it's lovely when there's a graphic novel adaption that keeps the style of the original like the Tintin versions when they did tv versions of those or there was a version of the tiger that came to tea that had the appearance of the original those sorts of things yes oh that was lovely whereas garfield the movie yeah okay yeah i can't deal with that (laughs) um it's funny you mentioned comics i mean it feels a bit vacuous to praise these because it's such mainstream culture but i think marvel have done a really good job over the last seven or eight years of adapting their comic books well into live action films. For years, I was so nonplussed about superhero films. Mm. Like the X-Men films did nothing for me and the first Spider-Man films did nothing for me. But continuous Marvel Cinematic Universe films do something that just really gets me in a way that the others don't. Like I really like the universe they've created. I like the tone that they've put together for them. And I'm not an expert on the comics at all. I decided to read some the other day and I hunted through to find out what was the best, what the fans and critics think the best Marvel comic series ever was. And I found it and read it. Didn't understand a word of it at all. <laughs> From what I could tell, you needed to be versed in about 50 years of Marvel backstory and chronology to get it. Which one was it? It was called Secret Wars. And it was about... So one of the things you have to know is that to get around the sort of continuity issues of 60 years of comics, they've basically created a multiverse of different universes. (laughs) And the main one is Universe 616, I think. And then there's another universe where Spider-Man is someone different. And there's another universe, and there's loads of universes. And in this comic, they all get destroyed. And Doctor Doom gets godlike powers and creates a new universe. And it's just... <laughs> it clearly was part of a much larger story. Yeah. To have the impact, it needed you to have been following the story all along with the, oh, they've destroyed the universe. But coming to it from scratch, it's like, I don't know who any of these characters are. They pop up and then go, who's married to who? No, there's like, it's like a soap. It's like trying to join us. It's like watching the Christmas special <laughs> of EastEnders, having never seen EastEnders before. <laughs> I think I like it when the publishers decide to start afresh with any kind of comics franchise, which they do periodically. And maybe the films have something of that spirit. They assume that people might be coming from it fresh, but they still have enough for the people who have read the other storylines, the other universes. Well, I imagine if you watched Endgame without having watched any of the other Marvel films, you'd probably think a little bit like, what the hell is this? <laughs> like, where's half of everyone gone? Well, I think I watched that with you, didn't I? And I had missed the previous Marvel film. And we had like half hour, maybe hour long <laughs> catch up where you just filled me in on everything I'd missed. And I was very impressed by your memory. I did one of those previously on things, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. I missed a lot. I didn't really get the Marvel films until Guardians of the Galaxy came out, which I watched on a plane because I had so low hopes for it. Yeah. 
And then I was so sort of delighted by its like wit <laughs> and charm and inventiveness. I was like, oh, there's something here. And I don't think I understood at that point that they were all set in the same fictional universe either. It's only when I then started watching them that I realised they're all going to come together. Which, of course, is that is the thing about the comics, I think, that people like. Like the thing that Marvel did yeah. or Stan Lee did back in the 50s or 60s or was start crossovers. And essentially that's what it does well, doesn't it? But I think there's something about the way they put those films together where they can tell this big story, but they can do it with charm and wit and there can be danger, but also humour. And like there's, I remember when I was watching Civil War, it's like Spider-Man is in it and they just introduced him and there's all, they're all fighting each other. And one of the characters says, Spider-Man's sort of quipping away and one of the characters says to him, you know, I don't know if you've been in many fights before, kid, but there isn't usually this much talking. And like there's just these like little... <laughs> wittier sides they have for each other and there's a bit in in the winter soldier where samuel l jackson is in like he's he's under attack and he's talking to the computer and he says like return fire and the computer says weapon system is offline he's like gets out of it and she's like engines are offline and he's like what isn't offline and the computer says air conditioning is fully operational (laughs) and just like those little bits they're really sort of charming in the context and if you watch even star wars which you know, for years I've loved Star Wars, but I feel like it's become bland and charmless in the same way that the DC films are now. I think actually that Guardians of the Galaxy was the first one to really set that change in tempo. I remember seeing that and just being blown away. I mean, not least because the soundtrack is awesome and the hero is irreverent. Yeah, I think it kind of proved to everyone at Marvel that people liked it when superhero films were funny and didn't take themselves too seriously. Thinking about the difference between the first Thor film and then Thor Ragnarok, they're just leagues apart. The first Thor film, I've got to say, was dreadful. You know, the Thor Ragnarok is just like takes the piss out of Thor all the time and like even cuts his hair, you know? Like you can't really take your hero down a peg more than cutting off Thor's hair. And it does such a good job actually of being funny but also having threat as well because Thor loses his eye in that one, doesn't he? Yeah, and somehow the fact that they use humour gives you more compassion for the characters too. I guess that's it too with Black Panther. They did this really well into... They introduce characters and actually spend time making you care about them versus just showing them as like excellent punching machines, which I think is what DC, you know, like the Justice League, uh, <laughs> just kind of slightly characterless punching machines. What is this problem, which I felt for ages before I got into these new Marvel films, was they basically all seemed to be an unstoppable force meets an unbreakable object. Mm. And you just watched two infinitely powerful, invincible creatures battling it out in ways that felt like they had no threat. But I feel like now they do quite a good job without just upping the stakes pointlessly every time and getting this sort of threat inflation that you get in films sometimes, or sequels certainly. Yeah. They also have a heart. Some of them genuinely make me, like, cry, which was really weird for these, like, children's films, but they actually Mm. can press my emotional buttons. Yeah, which is not something you would have really dreamt of saying, like, ten years ago. But yeah, the DC films. The only Batman films I've liked were the Christopher Nolan ones, which are humourless. Like... (laughs) Like everything Christopher Nolan does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, two of them are called Dark something, aren't they? But 
they are just very good. Whereas the new ones seem to have all of the darkness and none of the charm. Mm. But a friend of mine who really likes the DC comics says this is actually really unusual because the Marvel comics, he thinks, are always quite bland and charmless. Whereas the DC comics are the ones that are quite like witty and charming and have scripts that are closer to the Marvel films. And he points out that in one of the original Justice League ones, there's a scene, I haven't seen this comic, I haven't read this comic, so I have no idea what it's from. Um, And I'm paraphrasing it terribly, but there's an evil Superman and they're all sitting around and they're saying, the only thing that can kill Superman is kryptonite. So that'll be the only thing that can kill evil Superman as well. So somehow we're going to have to find a load of kryptonite. And Batman's like, oh yeah, I've got a load of kryptonite. (laughs) And Superman's like, what do you mean you've got a load of kryptonite? Do you not know that stuff kills me? (laughs) Batman's like, yeah, I just always keep some around just in case. You never know. (laughs) I can really see how they would do that if that were Marvel making that film. They even tried to make a joke in Justice League around sort of Batman's heartlessness. And one of the characters asks him, so what's your superpower? And he just deadpan says, I'm very rich. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, it feels a bit like Batman having like a midlife crisis and, you know, a really uncomfortable reckoning. Well, not even really a reckoning with his privilege, just a semi-reckoning of like, if I just state it out loud, then that'll be funny, which it's not. What's funny is Marvel sort of tried to do that in the Avengers with Iron Man, where Captain America says to him, take off the suit and what are you? And he says billionaire genius mm. philanthropist playboy <laughs> <laughs> there are some other books that i've liked adapted actually um, i might try and get off the subject of marvel just because it's it's almost painfully mainstream now isn't it yeah given neither of us have read most of these comics <laughs> i have really enjoyed some of my favorite tv programs actually have been the adaptions that were done of douglas adams as dirk gently I never really felt much about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mm. adaptions, the modern one, in inverted commas, yeah. which must be from like 20 years ago now. Oh God, don't. <laughs> With Martin Freeman. But, but I'm also really bored of the story of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because I'd heard it on the radio. I'd watched the 80s TV show. I've read the book. I don't really need that story again. But the Dirk Gently adaptions, and there have been two Dirk Gently adaptions. Yeah. BBC Four did one, which was absolutely lovely. Like, it was really low budget. It had Stephen Mannion as Dirk Gently. It wasn't actually telling the story from any of the books at all, but it managed to capture the tone of them really well. So each episode was a standalone sort of 45-minute episode with a case for Dirk Gently that sort of felt like one of the cases that he might have encountered. And it visually was really striking. They had really nice opening titles Mm. panning over a sort of big uh, map that he put together with sort of pins in it and bits of string around it. It was really nicely done and all hand-drawn. Yeah, lovely. And then they only made sort of four or five of them and they were on really intermittently because it was BBC Four. Their budgets were like tiddly squat. Mm. They had like a series of two and then like (laughs) they brought it back in as a series of like three and then they had one more and then it was it. Yeah, they're really delightful. (laughs) And then it got remade as an American version and they remade it with... I know this actually. I've seen it. Um, Elijah Wood. Yeah, it's got Elijah Wood in it. Actually, Elijah Wood's the sidekick. Who plays Dirk? Samuel Barnett plays Dirk Gently. I loved the American one. It was a series of episodes that each told one story in a season. And again, the story was completely different from the books. And it had quite a different tone. It was slightly comedic. It's sort of light comedy to it. But I just loved it. I loved the world it created. It did that thing where it was inspired by the books, but not really a straight retelling of the books, which I thought worked really well. What I liked about that show was it felt like a black comedy without 
going too yeah. dark. A lot of things that are described as black comedy end up in really horrifying places. We might have talked about this before. Whereas the US Dirk gently felt like it managed to tread that line between things being fantastical in a slightly grotesque way and things being fantastical in an optimistic lovely way and it walked a narrow line as well where it was fantastical i couldn't quite work out where it was going but when it did all resolve it did so in a way that didn't then feel really forced it felt like it created a world with some rules i didn't understand but those rules were consistent and when it all came together it all made sense which is sort of what the books do as well actually each of the Dirk Gently books tends to create a science fiction-y type world with lots of weird plot bits that you think, how on earth are they going to pull all these together? And then they do at the end. And that's what the series did as well. It's really interesting that both series decided not to follow the details of the books, though, because it's quite a complicated world to create. Well, especially because the book is... One of the things you need to know about me, which you might not know, is I'm a massive fan of the original 1963 to 1989 series of Doctor Who. And... Uh, I'll try not to force this on you too much, though. <laughs> but Douglas Adams was a scriptwriter for Doctor Who. He wrote a story called Sharda that has the dubious reputation of being the only sort of Doctor Who story they started to film and then abandoned. The reason they abandoned it was nothing to do with the script, actually. It was because there was a writer's strike. Was it a writer's strike? Or it was a strike during that period, and, they, and it's half finished, and they couldn't complete it. And there's a lovely recreation of the episode that they released on VHS, which has Tom Baker as an older man narrating the missing scenes. And so he sort of walks in and then says, ah, I remember that time. And then he narrates it. <laughs> but the plot of Sharda is basically the plot of Dirk Gently. Not exactly, but it borrows lots of bits to it. Because the first Dirk Gently book, I would say spoiler alert, but I don't, is it necessary to say spoiler alert for a book that was published 30, 40 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I think so, yes. It features time travel and obviously Doctor Who features time travel as well. He essentially took the idea that was not used in Sharda and then adapted it and expanded it and turned that into the first Dirk Gently book. So you're right, it's weird that they didn't just take the plot yeah. of the book and do a straight <laughs> version of that, given that it basically was originally written as a TV story. I got slightly distracted there imagining the sort of intellectual property fight you'd have now of adapting something that you'd written for work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a confession to make about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I watched that film, which also didn't move me at all. And then I thought, oh, I really should read this book. And so I dug the book out, read it, and then remembered, oh yeah, I have, I have read this before. <laughs> Just, uh, which is weird because it's quite an imaginative story and one you think would be memorable but obviously wasn't memorable at all. And for quite a long time, I'd been like, that's a classic. I really should read it. Forgetting that I already had read it. <laughs> I find that they all merge into one. Like, I couldn't tell you what the difference is between... I couldn't tell you where Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy ends and the restaurant at the end of the universe begins. Mm. Apparently, that's because Douglas Adams was so bad with deadlines and so far behind schedule that the publisher came and literally said, look, just give me what you've got so far, we'll publish that, and just took it before it was finished. <laughs> and that's why it just ends and then the, the next book just carries on straight away. I mean, there's one thing as a publisher, like, deciding to insert paragraph break that the author hasn't put in but like deciding to end a book where the author hasn't determined the end is like next level 
I haven't read the books, actually, but I'm partial to a James Bond film. I'll always go and see a James Bond film when there's one out, but I have no interest in reading the books at all. <laughs> I um, have read a James Bond book. I never watched the films growing up, and I was quite hesitant to see them. I think I saw the first one after uni, and I was hesitant because of the Bond girl stuff, obviously, and the reputation of the films. And a lot of that is, I, you know, I find difficult to watch. Yeah, especially some of the Sean Connery stuff. Like, there's some pretty awkward, like, physical abusive stuff in some of them. But I love the modern ones. I really, really enjoy them. So annoyed that last year's one got pushed back and back. And this year it keeps getting pushed back. Like, just give us the bond. We need it this year. But yeah, I listened to an audiobook actually, of one of the Bond books. And now I can't, you know, it's sort of like an Agatha Christie book, uh, Miss Marple. Like, I couldn't tell you which one it was, just that I did, and that it was quite enjoyable in the same way. Who did you imagine James Bond as when you listened to it? Mm, that's like a, a just a different way of saying who's your favourite James Bond, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it, it depends whether the book naturally lent itself to one of their particular styles or whether you just picked your favourite one and imagined him as the character in it. Um, I didn't do that, no. I think I, like, the actor playing Bond switching around made it easier for me to maintain a more vague idea of the character. But listening to it as an audiobook, I did have the narrator's voice as Bond's voice, I guess, so it was coloured that way. There's a, um, a James Bond video game I played, and the concept of it is that in Skyfall, when Bond gets shot and falls off the bridge this game came out, as Skyfall came out, it begins with that bridge sequence. And then the game consists of a series of his life flashing before his eyes as he falls. And you then play all the levels, which are his memories. It's voiced by Daniel Craig, but his memories are, there's one from each of the James Bonds, <laughs> but it's always Daniel Craig in them. Right. They've remade digitally in the game, Goldfinger, but Daniel Craig is delivering all the lines that Sean Connery delivered in it. And it's in the modern day as well. Interesting. It's quite nicely done, actually. Does that feel strange to you? The lines are famous enough that in my head I always hear Sean Connery saying them. So having um, Daniel Craig read them was <laughs> was weird. Mm. As I say, I've got no interest in reading any Bond films at all. But one thing I did really enjoy was a few years ago, John Ronson did a bit in The Guardian where he recreated, in inverted commas, one of the Bond books and... Actually, let me read you a little bit from the article, because it's quite a funny article. I want to recreate a great Bond journey, I say. I want to take a passage from one of the novels and assiduously match Bond car for car, road for road, meal for meal, drink for drink, hotel for hotel. Right. What a wonderful idea, she says. But which journey do you want to recreate? I don't know, I shrug. One in Moonraker? Moonraker is basically a drive from London to Margate, <laughs> so he says. Fleming's fans were disappointed by the absence of exotic locations. Goldfinger, I say. So he decided to do Goldfinger. And so Zoe is this expert in James Bond films. She says, great, Zoe says. Then she turns serious. For copyright reasons, it's essential you make it clear that you're following in the footsteps of James Bond and you are not actually James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case that was a risk. And actually, speaking of John Ronson, The Men Who Stare at Goats is another book where I watched the film before I read the book. The film has nothing to do with the book. Isn't it? Like, it's sort of vaguely inspired by it. But, like, 
the book is like a non-fiction investigation into like these weird things that the American military have funded over the years, told in John Ronson's kind of comedy way. Mm. Whereas the film was like a fictional story, like inspired by some of these real things that happened. So related to the idea, but really it's not the same at all. I guess they sort of treated it like they might a short story and used the kind of imaginative spark yeah. of that scenario. One writer I love is Nick Hornby. And I think... There are those writers who I'll always read their work. And I think my love of his is partly to do with when I first read him. Because I think he could be the first writer I read who wrote books about normal people and relationships. Like up until then, I'd been a child basically. And I mainly read books that were about magic people or (laughs) goblins and orcs or that was in space. And like he was writing a book that wasn't, wasn't set on a spaceship and didn't have any time travel. And it was just some people who were living together. The plot didn't really have a load of twists in it. It was just about their relationship. And so I think it sort of ushered me into into reading as an adult, in a way. Hmm. And I remember being absolutely blown away by High Fidelity and then reading How to Be Good, which for ages I said it was my favourite book, but I read it a few years ago and thought, hmm, yeah, it hasn't. I've grown up, but the book hasn't. <laughs> but it's it's got sort of some interesting things in it about moral responsibility and things. Anyway, Nick Hornby has adapted a lot. I love his works and I'll always read his works, but I do not like the adaptions of his works. Interesting. The one I can live with is the film about a boy, which has a lovely scene at the end, mm-hmm. which is so in keeping with the book, but actually isn't from the book. In my head, I'd, I'd edited it back into the book, but it isn't, <laughs> which is the beautiful scene at the end when Marcus, the child, is performing on stage and he sings this song, his mum, who's sort of slightly um, alternative and infantilizes him a bit. And she's taught him to sing this song. Killing me softly. Yes. <laughs> and he sings it on stage, unaccompanied. And of course, it's excruciatingly awkward. Yeah. And Will, who's the adult, who, although he is an adult in it, he's essentially an overgrown child. Will realises that Marcus, by singing this song on stage in front of everybody will be sabotaging his ability not to be bullied. And so he goes on stage and starts singing to take the heat off Marcus. And it's like such a beautiful moment, I think, because it's all about Will realising, like making a sacrifice, which is, you know, trivial in the grand scheme of things, but emotionally massive for him and growing up and doing something for someone else. So it's a lovely, lovely moment. Anyway, in America, they remade About a Boy as a TV series with Minnie Driver in it. Did they? And... The finale to the first episode is this moment. To the first episode. But in the American one, Americans, man, I don't know what to say. (laughs) When he goes on stage, rather than doing something even more excruciating to take the pressure off, he like brings on his guitar and like rocks it. And they both sing together and it takes the house down. Everyone's like, oh, you're really cool because you can sing now. (laughs) And it's like, that's that's completely not what that moment needs. Mm. It doesn't need... Like, Marcus doesn't need to be cool and have, like, cool Will come on and they're both cool together. <laughs> At that point, I was like, I can't watch this anymore. Like, it's this is, this is a different world. It's funny because that is the exact moment that I thought of when you said there was one lovely moment in the film. But what I particularly liked about it was that when Will gets on stage, it has that sense that maybe this will be cool. Yeah. And maybe Marcus will have a chance. And then it's a lovely callback because earlier in the story, 
Will observes Marcus and his mum at home singing this song and he kind of has this interior monologue of just like absolutely cringing because they close their eyes when they sing yes. and it's just like, like taking the piss out of people who are so serious about their singing that they close their eyes and then of yeah. course Will when he's on stage singing along with Marcus he gets way too into it and he closes his eyes and then I think at that moment he gets like hit in the head by some flying projectile <laughs> But, yeah, it's a lovely way to bring it back. So is that not in the book? The bit where he is really cringy about them closing their eyes is definitely in the book. But I thought when I last read it, I was surprised by that ending scene not being in it. So High Fidelity, then, not a fan of the film adaptation? Not hugely. I mean, it's fine, but the book is so much better and does... In part, it's because Nick Cornby's writing, I think, is really smooth and witty and it flows really nicely. You mentioned there those sort of interior thoughts of Wills. Mm. Like the whole book is that, basically. It's very, it's very, very much in his voice. And you obviously can do a little bit of it with the with the voiceovers. But yeah, High Fidelity was so much like that that yeah, the film didn't do much for me. I liked the film, but I hadn't read the book. And I sort of liked that the protagonist was a jerk, essentially. I think it's time to go back to the source and build the character out. I mean, John Cusack, I think, is pretty good at playing characters who are jerks, who you like anyway. But it would be nice to actually bring the character a bit more to life. But equally, I'd like to see the TV adaptation of that. I don't know if you know about this one. Yeah, I think it's an HBO with Zoe Kravitz playing the main character. So I wonder if... Obviously, Nick Hornby is a pretty, like seminal author for you are there any authors or books where there have been like multiple attempts to bring it to screen that you just you feel like no one can really do it justice the obvious one that sticks out to me is a book that I read at school in fact I read it twice because I read it at high school in the states and then I read it for a levels which was just a wonderful dos (laughs) because I had literally just done it um, and that's The Great Gatsby. Weirdly, I was about to say Great Gatsby. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone misses the point of it is the problem. Yeah, but I also loved the book. The visual imagery in it is beautiful. But the films, either in the 70s adaptation, it just feels a little bit too airy and doesn't feel like it has enough of the grandeur. Mm. Well, the glitz and then the Baz Luhrmann one is just full on glitz and it's so surreal. I mean, the story is a bit surreal, but it loses, I think, the necessary like grounding in some form of reality. And it also feels like the films of it, they become fixated on the opulence of it all. And when it's really, it's a criticism of wealth, and yet they seem to indulge in it in the wealth displays Mm. in a way that feels not critical enough. Yeah, I guess it's quite hard to do costumes Mm. and sets that are super opulent, that maybe just logistically you're getting lots of designers and people to work on this. And you are being opulent yourself, like they're very lavish productions. And does it become a lot harder to critique that when you're engaged in it? Yeah. Also, for me, like the Baz Luhrmann film, I just can't stand 3D movies. They give me headaches. <laughs> so taking something which is not a very headache-inducing experience of reading a book where you can take a pause, <laughs> look up every now and then, and turning that into 
you know, windows popping out at you and saxophone players and cars careening towards you is kind of exhausting. I've often thought there's something quite cinematic about Milton's Paradise Lost. Mm. It'd be a weird thing to adapt, but like the big battle scenes there, it feels like you could do a sort of Marvel-style telling of that. <laughs> Five films. I remember going to a university live reading of Paradise Lost. I can't really remember anything else other than the desperate desire to escape in a room too small to escape without being noticed. So my desire to have a cinematic experience that might match that is low. It would need to be, just take just take the elevator pitch of <laughs> yeah. this battle between Lucifer and God, the angel <laughs> civil war. Don't take any more than that. I suppose we sort of have that in Good Omens. Yeah. Obviously adapted from a book itself. Years ago, gosh, it must be about 15 years ago now, probably longer, the BBC did Chaucer retold and Shakespeare retold, where they did these modern adaptions. Mm -hmm. Like they gave the sort of concept of the wife of Bath's tale to someone, and then they did a modern version of it. Mm, I want to look that up. Your question a little while ago, is there anything that has been adapted lots of times, but I feel like they keep missing it. I have got one, and it also links back into my favourite topic of all time, so it would be remiss of me not to mention it, which is... Um, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, <laughs> which gets adapted a lot. Now, Independence Day is a version of War of the Worlds, and the BBC did a version recently that I just felt got worse and worse with every episode, to be honest. Yeah. But for me, the ultimate adaption of that, which isn't a film or TV, is Jeff Wayne's 1978 musical version of War of the Worlds, which has one, it just has an incredible soundtrack to it, as concept album, and it has Richard Burton's narration over it, which is amazing. Um, but the cover art for it is so evocative that I feel like I've watched it. Interesting. But I would definitely, your point earlier on about Persepolis, if they made a version of that that brought that cover art to life, that would be incredible. That would be my perfect version. <laughs> yeah. Instead, all we have is the Royal Mint making some HG Wells coins where the tripods have four legs. So, you know, <laughs> can't love everything. I've got one which is sort of the flip side of this. An adaptation that you feel like if you just read the book, you would think, well, this can't be adapted at all, and yet it absolutely works. And this one isn't a film or TV show, but a musical. And it is the musical of Fun Home by Alison Bechtel. Fun Home is one of two of her memoirs. This one is focuses largely on her dad, and their relationship and his death, but also the fact that Bechtel grew up in a funeral home. So fun home is short for funeral home. And the musical is absolutely fantastic. It is so joyful. There are all of these songs about like the, the kids, the three siblings make up like trying to attract business, you know, where they just sing about and bombing and their excellent rates on caskets and things. And it is so brilliantly done. I saw it at the Young Vic. I guess it was a couple of years ago. It was a Broadway or off-Broadway maybe musical. And came over here. And yeah, a graphic novel, a slightly sad graphic novel in many ways, uh, about therapy and a relationship with a parent turned into a really moving and funny musical. 
it's nice actually when someone takes something and manages to do something like that with it. I remember when I read a few years ago that Ridley Scott had bought the film rights to Monopoly. <laughs> and I thought, that's, I really want to watch that because it's either going to be amazing or it's going to be awful. Um, but I don't think yeah. he ended up making it. Instead, all we had was the film version of Battleships, which I hear was awful. <laughs> Could have given a miss. On adaptations of board games, Cluedo or Clue oh, yes. in the UK. I love this film. It played very much off of the imagery of other films of the time. It's got a bit of the Rocky Horror mixed with Agatha Christie type story, but so much fun and completely not what you would expect from a board game that's not narrative really at all. Cluedo is another one that has such beautiful imagery and iconography. When you think of Cluedo, you think of these sort of classic sets. I guess actually it's sort of like a set of writing prompts, isn't it? Professor Plum in the billiards room with the candlestick would be a great writing prompt. So maybe it's the perfect thing to turn into a film. The board game is almost a board game of Agatha Christie, isn't it? It's like a pastiche of an Agatha Christie whodunit. So mm. so turning it back into a film. Lots of silly ways to die. Yeah, sort of brings it full circle. You've reminded me actually, speaking of whodunits, one TV show that, I again, I have no interest in reading the books. And I think if I did, I wouldn't be able to get over the TV show is A Touch of Frost which I only discovered like 10 years ago, was based on a set of books. But I love Touch of Frost. It was obviously a vehicle for David Jason. Uh And I remember at the time reading, they wanted to cast him against type because he'd always been a comedy actor and they wanted to find a serious role for him. And they were looking around for something to adapt and they found these books and they're quite gritty and dark. They work so well and he's excellent in them. I have no idea how faithful they are to the originals and I have no interest in reading the originals because I'm not really into crime fiction anyway. It's not really whodunit. They're sort of more police procedurals, really. They're so perfect that it gives me everything I need. Yeah. The Wire, as well, speaking of police procedurals, was before The Wire, David Simon did something called Homicide, A Life on the Streets, which was a TV series and also a book, a non-fiction book, I think, based on his time as a journalist traveling around with the police. And then the TV series was a fictionized account of telling some of those similar stories. So you can sort of see a transition there from police reporting to writing it up into a book to fictionized version of book to entirely fictionized series of the wire. So it's uh, they're sort of all repeated adaptions of the same thing. All stepping stones. I wonder if in part it's because there's more latitude in film and TV to tell a story that is slightly slant based on reality. We might have talked about this before, but in books, readers often get quite uncomfortable if they're not sure if something is fact or fiction. If it's the sort of writing where it's in between the two, we don't really know where we stand and we're not so keen on it. And I suppose the way a lot of people get around this is just to say it's an autobiographical novel and then you're on safe territory. I think sometimes TV maybe gives people that nudge to say, yeah, this is a story that I can spin out into fiction. Well, it's funny when somebody buys the rights to a non-fiction book to convert it into a fiction show, because that's obviously what happened with John Ronson as well. That happened with The Favourite as well. The Favourite was actually just a work of history. It wouldn't be a bad reads episode without us talking about something that, a book that we hated, that we then watched a film version of and then hated it even more, if you have any of those. (laughs) I have a major one, and that is Atonement. And I hated this movie, and now I just can't even remember if I liked the book. 
at the time, but after seeing this movie, I also hated the book. (laughs) (laughs) And worse than that, I now won't read any Ian McEwan. Oh, wow. This film has put me off his entire (laughs) works. (laughs) Yep, I'm sorry, but it's not, I mean, it's not all on Keira Knightley. I'm not her biggest fan, but is it all on her? No, there's just nothing very good in that film. The only good thing in the movie is the dress. <laughs> How about you? Did any film turn you against the book? There's a book that I, I didn't like, and then I went to see the film and didn't like that either. But I already hated the book so much that the film didn't make it any worse. <laughs> this is The Da Vinci Code. Why did you go and see the film? I think as I was going, as I thought, but maybe it will translate into a film and be better. And then I went to see it and I was like, oh, no, no, this is no better. This is just as bad as it was before. <laughs> right i'm going to go back to the book i'm reading at the moment which hasn't been adapted into a film and i doubt ever will be which is a collection of essays by leslie jameson called the empathy exams Mm. her job is she's a medical actor which feels like this sort of it it feels like this made up job or something that like someone in a wes anderson film what sort of career they'd have where (laughs) her job is to pretend to have symptoms and doctors in training have to come in and do a consultation with her and then write down what what condition she's got and what they'd prescribe and so she's she has these little sets of scripts of what conditions to say and how to react to their questions and things it's a lot of fun actually it's really good so yeah i'm gonna get back to reading that what have you got waiting for you that sounds great well i've just finished reading a book that i a hundred percent could imagine being turned into a film which was Matt Haig's The Midnight Library. And actually, I listened to it as an audiobook narrated by Kerry Mulligan. I'm not sure that I really loved the writing, but I loved Kerry Mulligan's narration. <laughs> and so I tore through it in a couple of days. <sighs> what could I say without spoiling it? It has this concept which is very popular in films where you get a chance to play out different versions of your life. Films tend to do the kind of Groundhog Day. There are so many films now that do the Groundhog Day thing. This is slightly different from that. It plays on a multiverse idea. So someone who is on the brink of life and death goes to the Midnight Library and is given a chance to live in lots of different versions of her life if she had made a different decision. So if she had not given up competitive swimming or not run away from her wedding, etc. These kind of big life choices. She goes and she lives those versions. So I, I could imagine that definitely being something that people would want to try and adapt. I didn't love this book, so I'm not sure I would be first in line <laughs> to see the film unless maybe Carrie Mulligan was playing the main character. <laughs> But other than that, I've actually, yeah, so I just finished and I'm about to start a new book and I'm about to start Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan. That's the one where she's in Hong Kong, isn't she? Love Triangle. Yes. No, I have read it. Yeah. Right. I won't say any more. I won't spoil it for you. Oh, I also finished Cold Comfort Farm, built by the Sunday Times is the funniest book of the last century. I wouldn't necessarily agree with the Sunday Times' assessment, but I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It's a lovely parody of the very overblown D.H. Lawrence style of rural romantic writing with a very no-nonsense protagonist who just decides to go and 
tidy up the lives of her chaotic, miserable country relatives and does so. <laughs> you know, she doesn't have that much interiority. She just tidies things up. <laughs> it's very satisfying. Thanks for joining us today. As ever, you can check out show notes, a list of the books that we talked about, and probably a pretty hefty list of errata of all the directors' names we forgot to mention, actors we got completely wrong, etc. on our website, badreads.co.uk. Until next time.